we were trying to get it done in one school year. And between COVID and a number of other issues that kind of came up, we decided it would have to be across a couple of different, you know, classes. And so um, one class kind of started it and the second class kind of finished it. It turned into something that uh, has been very well received in the community. And what did the students do? Did they do everything? The students did primarily all of the shooting because they were able to be out there a lot. They kind of looked through and picked out some of the shots. They helped with everything from getting the interviews. We had one day where we did nothing but interviews. And then on a couple of other occasions, we interviewed uh, some of the other participants from, from the University of Iowa. We interviewed volunteers from the museum. Uh, we interviewed Larry Obermeyer, who's the he's the chairman of the board for the museum. Uh, and it's really between him and his father is the reason why that's there. Can you give us a little um, synopsis of what people I'll... can find out if they if they watch this documentary? So it starts with the, a very brief history of the Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul, and Pacific Railroad and their operations in this area. So in 1916, they started obtaining land out in Riverside for the building of a, a maintenance facility that will take and uh, you know assist them with, with heavy maintenance, uh, locomotives, cars, the whole nine yards, for a, a rapidly expanding uh, railroad and eventually they went all the way to the west coast. They were the third transcontinental line uh, that was there, and it covers how you know getting the land, building the shops. Interesting fact is that the land was actually given to the railroad by the Sioux City Brick Company. The Sioux City Brick Company owned the land, and they gave it to the railroad in turn for the railroad buying the bricks for the buildings from Sioux City Brick. And so then it covers the operations, how many people worked there, what kind of work was done there. It was the headquarters for a lot of divisions on this section of the railroad, the Sioux City and Dakota Division is what it was called. Then in the 19-mid-50s, they stopped using steam locomotives. So they started to use diesel locomotives, which didn't need nearly as much maintenance. So they still needed to maintain them there, but not at the level that was seen before. So then this, the site became much more involved in car maintenance, so for like uh, freight cars and cabooses, passenger cars and stuff like that. Then the uh, railroad, the Milwaukee Road, went out of business, declared bankruptcy. That would have been in the late 70s, early 80s. So as part of the bankruptcy proceedings, they had to offload a bunch of property. And one of the places, one of the last places they sold was the Sioux City Shops. At which point it became um, a, a guy who had a uh, had a scrap iron business bought it, and that's what it was used for. It was used like that until um, you know throughout the the rest of the eighties and into the early nineties. It became very run down. There were fires. There were you know people would go in there and and kind of mess around and do things they weren't supposed to do. The Susan Historical Railroad Association went out and decided they would put together a plan for the city. And the city basically saw there was value in their plan and helped them obtain the land. And then they spent 10 years cleaning 
everything up before they could even have people out there to visit. And there's always something going on to build onto there. So the, the, the last things, the last major things they did is a trail, they connected it to the Sioux City Trail System. So you can ride your bicycle uh, out that way from Riverside Park all the way up and back onto that. And then they also put in walking trails inside the museum, so you're so it, it and that way you don't have to trip and stuff like that. It makes it very easy to get around. The interesting thing about the the trails that they put inside the museum is that they they themselves honor the paths that the workers used on a day to day basis when they were working out there, because there were some sidewalks and stuff out there. And what they did was they planned these around them. So they left the original workers sidewalks out there and built onto those. And you can see right where that was. It's really a neat way to do that. Yeah, you're you're sharing information, you know, many people may not know about. Was there something else that you learned while helping the students with this project, something you didn't know before that kind of surprised you? Uh, well, one of the things that surprised me, I mean, have, I've, I've been involved with the museum and the SHRA for many years, probably close to 30 years, um, you know, helping, volunteering when I could and everything. And then this opportunity came up, which turned into really a, a neat way to, to do that. And the one thing that surprised me the most was how much stuff in the archaeological dig that has been happening for the last year or so, they've been able to locate and piece things together. Because as Larry Obermeyer stated in the documentary, the stuff, there was a lot of flooding events, okay? And they, um, you know, a lot of people assume that with a flood, there's stuff that's just washed downstream. But the flooding events took and deposited fresh soil on the existing stuff. So they go they go down sometimes almost 10 feet, if not a little bit more. And they're finding things like broken pottery from the from the 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 people that built the uh, shops because they're digging actually in where the work camps were for the itinerant workers that built the shops back in 1917. They have found things from the point of time when it was used by the railroad, so bo broken china from the dining cars. And they can identify this by flipping it over and there's a, a Milwaukee Road mark on the bottom of it. And they've actually found close to, you know, two pieces that were relatively close that actually fit together like a puzzle. So they've been able to locate that. There's just a lot of stuff that's down there. And these were all relatively preliminary looks. Um, but it's been a it's been really surprising how much stuff they've found. What a great project for your students. I'm sure you're very proud of the work that they've done. I'm very proud of them. The kids that have helped us do this, they're out now. Uh, we had here a little while ago, we had graduation, and so the last group that actually actively worked on it is now graduated. There will be another project coming up, hopefully. Um, but uh, every single kid that worked on this got a gig. Every single one of them's working either in local television or um, some of them have moved out of the area. Some of them weren't here. You know, they're not Sioux City kids to begin with, and they moved kind of back home and have gotten jobs back home, as it were. Um, and they, they were able to see it kind of come together and put it together 
Um, it's really neat. And, and the neat thing, the really neat thing is that when we had the premiere here a, a while back at the Lewis and Clark Center, um, most of the students who worked on it came to that and they saw the community come in and really enjoy this and be bowled over by the kind of, kind of work that was done. In the early days of the city, travel in and out of the area depended on stagecoaches and steamboats. As the city grew, the need for transportation with greater frequency and capacity led railroad companies to target Sioux City and their lucrative farm commodities with their expanding rail lines from the south and the east. 